wondering, by a show of hands in all of those different places where you're listening in, how many of you remember the game show Truth or Consequences? All right, lots of you do. It was popular in the 60s and the 70s especially, but even into the 80s. The premise of the show was that you would have to tell the truth. That is, you would have to get a right answer to a trivia question, and if you didn't, then you'd have to do some sort of silly or embarrassing stunt. Well, what you might not know is that even before it was on television, it was on radio, and it was all the way back into the 40s. And so at the 10-year anniversary, the host of the show said on the broadcast that any that if any town in America would rename itself Truth or Consequences by the name of the show, that they'd broadcast the 10th anniversary show from that place. Well, there was this spot in New Mexico, Hot Springs, New Mexico, that took them up on that and renamed themselves Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. I can remember as a kid driving by and seeing signs like this one driving through New Mexico to truth or consequences, thinking of how strange a town name that really sounded like, but didn't know kind of the origin behind how it got its name until much more recently. And lest you be tempted to kind of laugh at New Mexico for having a town name that, I can think of another state that has some town names that are kind of silly also, like Moon or Slippery Rock, or Lickdale, you know, Lickdale, Pennsylvania, or King of Prussia, right? And we could go on. In fact, let's. 84, Wampum. How about Asylum? Normalville? I wonder if Normalville is next to Asylum. I kind of think probably not. It also makes me wonder, you know, if you have to name your city Normalville, isn't that pretty much the confirmation that you're not? I mean, really, when you stop to think about it. Well, Truth or Consequences is a pretty odd name when it comes to a city, when it comes to a town, but it's actually perfect as a description of the options that are before us as we consider the passage that we're going to be looking at today as we continue on in our Real Thing sermon series. John, our author has something that he wants to say to us relative to what truth is, where you find truth, and it needed to be spoken in that day because there were a number of people, false teachers, who had come into the church and had other places of influence where they were seeking to lead people astray. And so he writes, in part, this book to combat those false teachers and that false teaching and to make sure that people were going the right direction. This is something that we need to continue to be diligent and vigilant about today. Because there are still false teachers, there are still plenty of people who are out there who would love to lead us astray. You may know somebody, or certainly there are hundreds or thousands of people who have tuned in, maybe on the television or read on the internet or on a radio program or something, from someone who is promising some great benefit and blessing from God if only you will send this amount of money into their program, into their show. And people have been built out of thousands and thousands of dollars, life savings, buying into what essentially was nothing more than a scam. There have been other people who have had some religious interest, and so they started to listen in and sort of to get drawn in, but they didn't really have any spiritual knowledge or understanding or discernment, and before you know it, they got sucked into something that they weren't prepared for because someone was trying to lead them astray. 
Or it might be that someone had become disillusioned by something that they had heard, maybe in the church or through some religious teacher at some point along the way. And that might be your circumstance. And it's only recently that you've come back to church, that you've sort of gotten over the sting and the burden and the pain of what it is that has happened to you. Or that certainly is the case for many, many people in our world today. What we need is a way that we would be able to recognize what is true and what is false, that we would not fall into the trap of getting sucked in to those things that are not true and have to bear the consequences of living a life that is really apart from what God would have us to do. And that truth is available, and it comes to us from our author, from John, and the passage that we are looking at today. And I'd invite you to open up to that passage. It's 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 is where we're going to get started today. We'll be in the English Standard Version throughout the duration of this series, but uh, certainly the NIV, if that's what you have in your lap, is a valuable tool for you as well. In this passage, John starts with the problem, and then he works toward the solution. He identifies the nature of the issue, and then he goes on from there. It's a helpful progression for his first century readers, and it's also a helpful progression for us as well. So that's the pattern that we're going to follow. And the first reality John points out is that the deception of others is around you. We're highlighting that. The deception of others is around you. Take a look at how John begins what he has to say. Verse 18, he says, children... There's that loving father again. We've seen this several points. He's talking about his little children. There are going to be more that come later in the letter. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. A couple of times, John here is talking about this idea of the last hour. Jesus was here, he ministered on this earth, he died, he rose again, and then he ascended into heaven. But before he left this earth, he told everyone that he was going to be coming back again. Sometimes we call that the second coming, sometimes we call it the return of Christ, call it any of a number of things. But the period of time until he comes again that we are in is sometimes called the end times, sometimes it's called the last days, sometimes by John it's called the last hour. Actually, John is the only one in the scriptures that uses that particular designation, the last hour, but they're all talking about the same thing. Now, he says it's the last hour, which makes it sound like, well, this is something that must be happening pretty soon, but... If you know your Bible, you know the timetable, you know that he wrote this almost 2,000 years ago. So kind of what's up with that? Well, John and others were, other Bible writers, were very hopeful that Jesus would return soon. They were hoping that they, he would come back in their lifetime and even believed to a degree that he was going to, though they also knew that Jesus said, no one knows the time or the hour And John's not trying to be apocalyptic here in what it is that he's saying. He's not saying, well, Jesus is returning tomorrow. He's not setting a date. He's not setting a time. He's just acknowledging the fact that it could happen at any moment. He's setting the stage for the fact that everything is ripe and ready and it could happen so that we might be ready. Other scripture writers do the same thing. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. That also was 2,000 years ago. The writer to Hebrews says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. So you can see that same sort of idea, that same sort of urgency that they were feeling 2,000 years ago, let alone what we ought to feel today. Also we need to keep in mind that our reckoning of time is not the same as God's reckoning of time because God is eternal. 
And so 2,000 years to an eternal God is really quite minute when you think about it. It's just a small sort of drop in the bucket even. In fact, Peter wrote this. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. It's a different perspective. An economist heard that verse, and he said to God, God, is it true that a thousand years is just like one day? And, and God said, well, yeah, that is true. The economist said, well, then does that mean that a million dollars would also be like a penny to you? God said, well, yeah, that's, that's true too. The economist said, well, can I have one of those pennies? God said, sure you can. Just wait here a minute. All right. The, the point in John highlighting that it was the last hour was just to make sure that people knew it could happen at any moment because he wants them to be prepared. He wants them to be ready and not caught off guard. For whenever it happens, Matthew said this, Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Are you staying awake? I don't mean right now. Someone in the back got nervous. I hope you stay awake now. But that's not what this... Are you ready for Jesus to come back? Are you awake? Are you watching? Are you ready? Are you anticipating that day? That's what he wants to know. That's what he's bringing up. Ready to meet him face to face. If there is anything that you wish... We're different in your life. Because some of us, we hear that and it's like, no, I don't want Jesus to come back today. Because there's something going on in my life that I really need to be free from. Because I don't want to face Jesus face to face with what it is that's going on right now in my life. Others of you would be on the flip side. You say, no, I don't want him to come back because there's something that should be a part of my life that is not a part of my life yet at this point. So if he comes back today, there's going to be embarrassment. There's going to be shame. There's going to be pain in my life. So I'm not ready for him to return. And if that's what your response would be, then that to you is the flashing red light. It is the red flag that is waving over your life to say, do something about that now. Because the only way to be prepared for him fully when he comes back, since we don't know the day or the hour, is to prepare for it right now and to live in preparation. To live constantly in that place where we're ready whenever it would come. For some of us, that's the word that you're here to hear today. That God wants to say to you, you've already demonstrated for yourself that you're not where you ought to be because you're not ready for his return. It can come at any moment. You need to prepare now. John also says there's some evidence of the fact that the last hour has come. Verse 18 again. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. He goes on about them. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. First of all, John talks there about the Antichrist. All right? You've heard about the Antichrist before. He's one who is going to come under the power and influence of Satan. And he is going to have tremendous power and influence himself. And he is going to lead many, many people astray. He's going to come and stand against Jesus. He is going to come and bring devastation ultimately to Christendom until Christ comes and rules ultimately over him. But he will have tremendous power. And so John mentions him, and everybody had heard about him, but he goes on, and what this passage is really talking about are what he refers to as antichrists. 
as the passage goes on. Antichrist can mean instead of Christ, and that is what the Antichrist is going to be. He's going to come and try to set himself up as Christ and oppose him and stand in his place and seek to overrule. That's what his desire will be. Antichrist can also, though, just mean against Christ. And that's what John is talking about here, are people who are against Christ. Christ. They've come into the church, they've been talking their heresy, and they've been working to lead some people astray. This is really the early form of cults. These are people who have been a part of the church, but they have started to stray away from the truth of the Bible. That's what most cults do. Most cults, when you listen to them speak, when you listen to their leaders speak, there will be things that sound familiar to you if you've grown as a Christian, if you are familiar with Christian teaching. Oftentimes, that's their desire is to speak those things which sort of sound the same and there are some things that are actually based in what might be true, but then they start to veer off of that in all sorts of different, different directions. And so it sounds familiar and that's what sort of gets some people to let their guard down, but if they're not discerning, if they don't know the Word of God, if they're not connected to where God would ultimately be taking them, then they are susceptible to falling into that trap. And that's why they get sucked in is because it sounds familiar. And that's an intentional strategy on the part of cult leaders, no doubt about that. In, in major world religions, they will at least come out and tell you that you're not on their team, and they're not on your team. You ask a Muslim or a Jew or a Hindu if they are a Christian, and they will say no. You ask most of the cults if they are Christian, and they will say yes. They will say yes. Part of their deception is that it sounds familiar, which is why we need to take it one more step. And the dividing line to always get down to brass tacks and figure this out, it's always Jesus. It is always Jesus. What do you do with Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? You ask some of the cults, some of them will tell you, they will admit, well, Jesus, we believe he's a, a, a great man, a great teacher, a, a good prophet, any of those sorts of things. And so you'll understand there's a red flag all of a sudden that's waving for you. But others won't be quite that transparent. You might say, do you believe that Jesus is God? Yes. Do you worship him? Yeah. Do you pray to him? Absolutely. So you need to keep pressing. Well, do you believe that Jesus is eternal God? creator God, fully God, fully man that came into our world to die on a cross as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of mankind who were hopefully lost without him, that he rose victoriously over the death, over, grave, over the grave, over death, ascended into heaven and will come back to rule and reign one day. Well, no, we don't believe all that. The dividing line is Jesus. It's always been Jesus. It's the same thing for John here. And when you see what he goes on and says and gives to them is the way that we know that these people are not of us has to do with Jesus. Verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That this is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You can't separate the Father and the Son. To know one is to know the other. To suggest that one is not God is to suggest that the other is not God because they are one. Don't get fooled by language that sounds familiar and put your guard down without fully investigating who is Jesus. Ask who they believe Jesus to be to make sure that you understand. 
of what their nature is and from where they come. First reality that John points out is that the deception of others is around you. That's no reason to fear because he goes on and he also says that the protection of the Spirit is upon you. So John brings up the Antichrist, but he also has in verse 20, look at it, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. John says to the believers in the church that they have this special anointing that rests on them. He says it has to do with knowledge, but he's not saying that they have all knowledge, and so they can't just rest in the knowledge that they have. Many people run off into that error. It's like, well, I already know everything that I need to know. I'll be able to discern myself, and they run off, and they're lacking all of the knowledge that they ultimately need, and they don't have what is necessary in order to overcome. The truth is that there is no one who has all knowledge apart from God himself. Not even those people on Jeopardy have all the knowledge. That was actually pointed out this week, rather plainly. There was a show that aired and uh, just this last week, and it had a fitting category given the big game from this afternoon, and uh, it made this point, so I thought you should see it. So go ahead and take a look. Uh, football 200. Your choice. Do or don't name this play in which the quarterback runs the ball and can choose to pitch it to another back. An option play. Ryan? <laughs> uh, football, 400. I can tell you guys are big football fans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tom Landry perfected the shotgun formation with this team. <laughs> Dallas Cowboys. Uh, do you think we should go to commercial? <laughs> Ryan? Take it on to 600. Okay, by signaling for one of these, a returner can reel in a kick without fear of getting tackled. Fair catch. Two clues left, Ryan. 800. These penalties are simultaneous violations by the offense and defense that cancel each other out. And they are called offsetting penalties. Let's look at the uh, $1,000 clue, just for the fun of it. <laughs> Jimmy? As Minneapolis's U.S. Bank Stadium prepares to host Super Bowl 52, I'm looking at the Ring of Honor with names from this defensive line that took the Vikings to four Super Bowls. If you guys <laughs> ring in and get this one, I will die. <laughs> Who are the purple people eaters? We're going to take a break. I have to talk to them. <laughs> Having seen that, how many of you are smarter than Jeopardy contestants now, right? All right. Yeah, it kind of makes you want to go on the show, doesn't it? You'd do great. Although, if I went on the show, I'd probably get categories like obscure librarians of ancient Egypt or something like that, right? Yeah, no, I, I especially love the fact that Alex is picking on his contestants. And he gets them pretty good. All right. Nobody has all knowledge. And that certainly is true in spiritual realms, and that's what John is saying here. But he says, don't be discouraged about that, because you don't have to have all knowledge, because you've got something else. You have an anointing. And the anointing that he is talking about is the Spirit of God who comes to live on and in every believer in Jesus Christ. That's what's been promised to us. When Jesus left this earth, he promised to send his Spirit to come 
and indwell us. And you don't have a second-class uh, second sort of anointing. All believers have it the same. It's the same Spirit that fills all believers. There aren't some sort of super saints who get a special anointing. That's why they know what they know. No, the Spirit of God is present with all. It's the presence of His Spirit that makes you able to discern what is of God and what is not of God. This is John's epistle that we're studying in his gospel, the fourth gospel in the New Testament. He adds this, or here's what he says. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. All truth. Again, this is important because we're not living in a world or in a context where all spiritual forces are working for your good. Not at all. Verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. That's what they're trying to do. I don't believe that there's a devil behind every bush. I don't, that's not my point of view. That's not my worldview. I don't believe that we are susceptible to all of the forces of evil that might come against us, but there is no doubt that this deception is real, that there are attempts being made against you to lead you off into falsehood, into bad doctrine, into sin. But there is hope. Because Satan and his minions are not omniscient, they're not omnipresent, they're not omnipotent, but God is. And the Spirit of God is. And it's that Spirit with which you have been, as a believer in Christ, anointed. That's what he is saying. That's good news. Verse 27. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Whoa. Whoa. Nobody should teach you? Is that, is that really what he is saying? No, I don't think that that's ultimately what he is saying. It would seem a little odd anyway for him to teach them that they don't need any teaching. It would be odd because Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that, he, that the Spirit gives gifts of teaching to people. What he is saying here is that you, could, you should stop listening to the teaching that you have been led astray by from these false teachers and listen to the scriptures and to the Spirit. Verse 27 goes on, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. John knows that if we start entertaining false teaching, inevitably we're going to get sucked in and we're going to get led astray. And he doesn't want that for us, so he gives us some safeguard toward the truth. And if you want to understand just a very basic, healthy approach to, to understanding what it is that God would have for you, to have some confidence in what he's saying and where it is that you are to go, there's kind of this three-step process you might think of. The first of those steps is the Word of God. This is his revelation to mankind. This is him saying to us, this is truth. This is what I want you to know. Which is why we are constantly talking around here about the importance of being in God's word, of reading it for yourself, of having it open in your lap when we study it together so that you might see what it says, so that you might glean from it, so that it might become a part of who you are. Be wary of any person, any church, any religion that doesn't encourage you to get into the word of God for yourself. This is where truth comes from. A second step would be teaching. Teachers who come to help with understanding and help with application so that we might, in some of those circumstances where we might not fully understand it or where we might just have the Spirit through the teacher bring us the Word so that we might be inspired and encouraged and, and challenged. 
It's a process that God uses, and the last of those would be the Spirit of God, this anointing that we're talking about that comes and confirms the word of a teacher, that comes and confirms in our hearts and our minds that this is what God is leading us toward and what it is that He is asking of us. It is all of those things taken together. Have you ever, have you ever had the, the TV on and one, you know, maybe some TV preacher, someone's preaching, or you're hearing it on the radio, or you're reading something on, and it's like, there's just something that's not quite right about that. It, it sounds kind of familiar. He's using a lot of words that pastor uses at church, but it, it just doesn't sound quite right. Well, it's quite likely that that's the Spirit of God in you saying, caution, red flag, false teaching. Because that's what the anointing of the Spirit can do for us. But where those things are in alignment, if those things are not in alignment, then those are major red flags. Do not advance. But where they are in alignment, that's where God is sort of flashing a green light saying, go, go after it. Where you have that sort of confirmation, you can know with absolute certainty that that's what he would have for you. So get after it. The deception of others is around you. The protection of the Spirit is upon you. Then one more reality, the provision of the future is within you. John describes what that looks like in verse 24. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. What did they hear from the beginning? Well, they heard the truth about Jesus, about His life, about His ministry, about His miracles, about His death, about His resurrection, about His propitiation for sin. Remember that word? That Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, stands in our place for our sin, sacrifice that brings life. Remember, it always comes back to Jesus, and that's what they'd heard from the beginning. Verse 24, and he's reminding of that. It goes on. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made us, made to us eternal life. Christ is our anchor, and John is just a little bit obsessed here with this word abide and the idea of what all of that means, and he's not done in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. John is saying that if you want confidence to know that you are in Christ, if you want confidence to know that you can stand before Christ without shame when he comes again, because we will stand before him at the, uh, at the judgment, if you want confidence to know that you have eternal life with Jesus Christ, if you want confidence to know that you are the real thing, then abide in him. That's what he's saying. Isn't it interesting to you, as it is to me, that every week it just keeps coming back to the same thing? He keeps saying essentially to us the same thing. Abide in him. Abide in him. Abiding is embedding your life in Jesus Christ. Not just getting interested in Christ when, when your conscience sort of finally pricks you or when you're in a difficult circumstance and you need him. It's not about asking yourself, how, how close can I get to the line of sin without actually falling into sin? Every week, he just keeps bringing it back to the same thing again and again and again. Abide in him. Abide in him. Full commitment, 24-7, everything that you are. Are you getting the point of all of that? Is that settling in? Is it sinking in? 
for those of us who are trying to kind of walk with one foot in Christ and one foot in the kind of things that I sort of want to do, he's saying, no, that's not abiding in Christ. And what he is saying here is that the consequence of failing to do so, the consequence of failing to walk in truth, of abiding in Christ, is that we will be embarrassed on the day that we stand before Jesus. We will stand before him in shame because we are not prepared for his return. We will stand in a way that is susceptible to false teachers who've been able to get a hook into us and to drag us off into other things. And you don't have to go all the way off into denouncing Christ and into some false cult to allow false teaching to have its way with you. You might just have sort of stumbled and, and not stumbled, but been, been dragged into or led into to sin. Maybe you've just inched into it. Well, something is a false teaching that is leading you there. It might be a false teaching in your own brain that is not resisting the temptation that the evil one would bring upon you. The consequence is that we would not fully walk in our relationship with Christ. That's the consequence. The truth, if we pursue that, leads us to hope and joy and righteousness and an anticipation of Jesus' return and an excitement for when that's going to come because I'm ready for it to happen. Truth or consequences? The choice is yours. What's it going to be? Heavenly Father, thank you for John's very pointed word to us. Thank you for this return passage after passage, week after week, to this idea that we need to abide in Christ, that we need to give ourselves over fully and completely, not a little bit, not partially, not one foot with everything we have and one foot not so much, everything, all that we have to bring to the table. Lord, I pray for folks who are listening right now, for there are influences that are coming against us. Last week you spoke of it as being the world coming against us. And it's real influence. Antichrists, people who are seeking our demise. Father, we recognize we're going to have to stand strong. We're going to have to be intentional. We're going to have to move forward with the Word of God before us and the Spirit of God upon us. We might be able to recognize what is true and what is right and put off that which is not. So Lord, I pray that we would not be subject to the consequences because we're choosing the truth instead. Lord, give us the courage, the boldness, the power, the inclination to go there, to live that life for your sake, for your glory, for your honor, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.